0: So today we're going to be talking to Yaffa El Masri who will be discussing uh, with Future Natures the topic of commons and commoning and touching on enclosure in relation to a refugee camp in Lebanon which she's had her own personal lived experiences in as a Palestinian refugee. So welcome Yafa, and if you'd like to introduce yourself.
1: My name is Yafa al-Masri and uh, basically I was born as a Palestinian refugee in a specific Palestinian refugee camp in the south of Beirut, which is the Lebanese capital, in the campus and the uh, camp is called Burj Barajne, and somehow I ended up being a geographer because I think I was always trying to understand this um, relationship that we make with the space, Um, whether it's a space of waiting or it's a space of home or what kind of space is it and how we can live in this. So I went into geography and now I'm doing my PhD in geographic studies and geographic mobility at the University of Padova. Basically in my research, I try to focus on solidarity among refugees. So I am basically writing and researching about the refugee camp that i came from and the community that i grew up in and i tried to understand how uh, this community builds so many different structures by which they collaborate and try to build um, a life together and eventually i mean th- that is the idea of commoning right that how people share or collaborate or co-construct things so that they all um live well and i think that we in this era, specifically, there is so much um, attention and money and resources that is being given to humanitarian aid and humanitarian assistance and international organizations that uh, come into refugee camps and sometimes, you know, impose their ways of living, impose Western ideas or sometimes you know they end up dividing people rather than bringing in this community spirit and so i really wanted to focus on this community spirit this community collaboration the commoning and how it works on my camp because i really think that this is what we should be feeding resources into rather than trying to break this uh spirit my my first paper was about uh the 72 years long process of making home in refugee camps and uh, how these waiting zones, the refugees have constructed them through commoning, they've constructed this this home. Um, I have published a few things since then. Uh, there was, uh, for example, my second paper about how also um, they've been commoning the process of decolonizing education and how also we receive you know, also education that is um, colonized to some extent by humanitarian aid, because these Western organizations decide what you should be learning as a refugee child. And a lot of times, especially in my experience, what we learned had absolutely nothing to do with where we come from, our identity, our rights as refugees, the history and geography of the land that we come from, the history of our displacement, So we were also doing a lot of commenting in the community about, for example, storytelling and pooling all these stories that we know about where we come from and doing a lot of teaching. Thank you so much. Yeah, so fine using very succinctly um, but a very broad
0: understanding to kind of situate us within your work. Um, and yeah, just as reference, the paper that we were mentioning at the beginning, the one published in 2020, was published in Frontiers of Sociology and it's titled 72 Years of Homemaking in Waiting Zones, Lebanon's Permanently Temporary Palestinian Refugee Camps. And I would thoroughly recommend checking it out because, yeah, it's, it's a really brilliant paper. I guess then going back to that paper and, and it was hinted in the title as well and specific parts of the paper which you talk about and um, related to homemaking if you could d- d- develop a little bit on the feminist framework that you you applied to the idea of homemaking and sort of how it helped you conceptualize um, homemaking in relation to sort of the reproductive labor that happens within the refugee camp the care and the kinship making in the context of sort of Uncertainty, I guess, um, in the refugee camp in Lebanon, in which your research takes takes place. I wondered if maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that paper took a lot of uh, emotional labor of me, even personally. Um, um, I really enjoyed the literature by uh, Fabos and Brunn, and um, it was this this feminist perspective towards a home um, and a homemaking from Um, perspective of embodiment, but also looking at a person's emotion and looking at a person's perspective, but also more importantly, looking at the agencies that refugees can develop. So for this uh, particular paper that refugees are given resources um, to not become permanent, to not settle down. They're always given temporary resources, temporary housing, um, resources that don't really enable you to to seek something permanent, seek a career, or construct something permanent, but rather just to survive for a while because you're not supposed to become permanent. And we see that refugees often challenge that, and they do construct permanent lives out of resources that are given to them by humanitarian aid for completely different purposes. And so, um, the feminist approach of, of fabos and Brand was to how to look at the agencies the perspectives the desires of these refugees and acknowledge that they are an important part of homemaking and not just the legal process of seeking citizenship that's not how you make a home but it's rather the process with the community the type of sharing that you're doing is the construction of houses a collective process or was it an individual process was it collaborative um Are you thinking of a far future when you are uh, building a community life? Are you making friendships? Are you making families? Are you uh, seeking love? Because these are all parts of making home. So one of or some of um, the practices that, for example, I would always see in Burj Al as I was growing up is um, the way we lived through everything. In community. And I think that growing up, I never um, I never saw or understood a true value of material things or money or financial means, because in the worst times, money could not really buy you anything when you are in displacement or under siege or during a war or at a period of food insecurity or food scarcity. Even if you do have the money, it doesn't matter because the resource itself doesn't exist. So this is where you sense the, the weakness of these financial resources or heavily financial-based systems because in these cases, money cannot help you, but rather helps you is the sharing, the community, the collaboration to find a way to, to find a resource, the, the food sharing that happens. And this is what makes all the difference. Um, In my refugee camp specifically, the biggest thing we were sharing, I would say, is the space. Because Burja Barajne is a very small refugee camp. It's an average space compared to all the refugee camps in Lebanon, because Lebanon is a small country and it has around 12 Palestinian refugee camps. Um, Each camp has the space between half a kilometer squared and a kilometer squared. So... They're very tiny because at that time they were established to host 1,000, 2,000 people. Um, But basically what happened is that, again, this was a resource that was given to people to be temporary because they were supposed to stay here for only a few years. And then uh, they didn't want them to become permanent, but they did. Um, What happened is that the population was reproducing. And now, 72 years later, we are at 30,000 people, for example, in Burjil Barajne. So you can see how the number multiplied, but because legally we cannot expand outside the one kilometer squared, so you have 30,000 people in a space that is at the maximum of one kilometer squared. And that is a really dense, high population. Um, But again, you, learn how to share the space. You learn how to construct your community in a way that, okay, you cannot expand horizontally, so you expand vertically over each other's construction. So one person constructs um, their, I would say, house, even though it's it might be called differently. And then the others go building on the same uh, basis or on the same building that he has constructed and the construction process takes place also in a collective manner, taking care of the house of your neighbor, but also building your own and then sharing um, a lot of spaces in between, sharing spaces at the top, sharing spaces at the bottom. For example, the spaces at the top would become gardens or social spaces and the spaces at the bottom would become um, used for economic activities such as uh creating small shops or grocery shops or so on but because it is quite congested um you basically have no privacy as a person and your private life becomes a common Um, everything in your life every milestone is lived collectively you do not live milestones on your own whether these are happy milestones they're good or they're bad and one of the examples that I always give, and I have given through our summer school in Coimbra is weddings and how when weddings happen in any refugee camp, but especially in Burjul is so difficult that uh, somebody doesn't attend your wedding because involuntarily you are there and In one kilometer square you have 30,000 people that are hearing the music and that want to come out and sing for you but also because you've grown up with these people for your entire life for a lot of us we were born in this refugee camp we went to school inside the same refugee camp Um, I left when I was 26 so for 26 years I was exactly with the same people so you know everybody and everybody knows you so well and you have 30,000 people celebrating your wedding and throwing rice at you and singing for you and dancing you around and no one else in the world can have that no one else can have a wedding with 30,000 attendees that are celebrating a big moment for your life and the same thing happens for a school graduation for any other good news for the birth of a child um so all the moments all the milestones and private lives become common, but also then all the responsibilities become shared responsibilities, whether it's caring for children or caring for a sick person. All of these times are also shared because you don't even have to plan it. Everyone is hearing you all the time. If you have a crying baby, um, you're not really at a distance from anyone because you can hear each other all the time because you have no private life. Hearing a crying baby means you're going to have 10 people coming from all around you, knocking on your door, saying, I'm going to help with that baby. I can hear it. Or if you're going through any type of uh, grief or any type of problem, it's the same. Your problems are also a common and it's it's, it becomes a burden that is shared and and taken by everyone around
0: you. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a really a powerful statement. people's problems are common in a way as you said that a lot of people around the world will never have to respond to in that way um but as you said, and as you mentioned in in your work as well that f- sort of framing it as commoning within the camp actually reaffirms the agency of the refugees, you know rather than taking that away um their self organization of of the space as a commons is a is a choice and is something that has been done through the agency of the people living there. Um, and I guess in that sense it sort of seems that the people living within the camp have to some extent sort of subverted the typical organisational structures of the state of, of the private or the public realm and so I, I guess that kind of directly then leaves a space for the Commons to come up and I wondered then in, in that sense of, you've already mentioned it a lot already, but Um, how sort of life making within the camp is organized or to what extent it's organized autonomously um, by its inhabitants in relation to not just infrastructure but around decision making around mutual aid and and also you mentioned before about education and I just wondered maybe if you wanted to use this time to also to talk about that.
1: I think when you think of a refugee or even google a refugee and every single representation that comes up in your face is the refugee as a victim or as someone that is helpless. And there's one big problematic that people uh, tend to overlook with this kind of representation is that the more we represent people as helpless, the more we give, um, let's say, bigger entities or international organizations so much uh, legitimacy to intervene in these people's lives and enforce a certain lifestyle on them or make decisions on their behalf and often speak on their behalf. Um this is also, in another way, um, it's it's paralyzing to refugees, and it's um, a lot of times preventing them from participating in decision-making, but also participating in saying what they want or what they desire, and, and also bring to the table a lot of things that they can bring. Because... Normally, the the narrative goes like this, Um, you know, oh, you know, these refugees, they are hardly able to find something to eat or they're struggling to get an education or they're struggling to get, I don't know, to to make ends meet. So they're not worried about politics or they're not capable of participating in shaping policies or they're not capable. You know, they're hardly getting an education. How am I going to include them in Uh, governmental processes where I make uh, major decisions and this is how we tend to exclude refugees and this is how refugees tend to get left out from tables where decisions are made about them so when policies are made about refugees we often don't consult refugees because we keep saying refugees are helpless, refugees are victims, refugees don't have this and don't have that, they're uneducated and they're struggling so we really need to Uh, Yeah, bring out totally the the full picture to always focus on the idea that this kind of narrative is uh, counterproductive at at all times Um, and on the other hand uh, humanitarian aid is necessary but not sustainable at many times um, the kind of aid that is mutual aid that is produced by people themselves is farther more effective than the aid that is presented by humanitarian aid. Uh, for example, now I'm writing a book chapter that is about sisterhoods and food sharing. And what I study specifically in this chapter is something that I've witnessed my entire life, which is how women in these uh, refugee camps, which are also always presented as you know oppressed women, uh, women that have no voices and so on, But actually, they have these very strong bonds of sisterhoods. And these bonds of sisterhoods is the way that they protect each other so much. They are assisting each other um, in subverting whatever oppression they're going through. It's also a great mechanism that they support each other and help each other from or protect each other from gender-based violence. These sisterhoods are also so strong to uh, build up startups and businesses and so on. But most importantly, there were also uh, the major agents of food sharing in the camp, not only because um, women are the main food makers in the community, so they were the ones making food, but also because they had these really strong networks of sisterhoods. So they spoke to each other about everything. Their relationships were so close. They were so transparent. They were so you know, such close friends and intimate with everyone that they knew and they were able to trace and identify where the food insecurity is happening. So in situations where people are embarrassed to express their financial problems and their food insecurity, when the women speak to each other, there is no embarrassment because there are these really strong bonds and there is this strong trust. So women are able to identify that certain families are going through financial problems and food insecurity, and they would be able to tackle it through food sharing. So in a way, these bonds of sisterhoods that happen between refugee women, one is is able to identify the families that are struggling but do not want to be exposed and go publicly stand in food queues and go publicly uh, ask for money from humanitarian aid. So they're helping the people that are in the blind spot of the humanitarian aid. And on the other hand, they're providing a much more dignified alternative to humanitarian aid. In a sense, um, you know, this is not um, a homeless people kitchen, or this is not a humanitarian aid center where you have to go ask for assistance and publicly display your need. This is something that is happening in such a friendly sisterhood manner where women are cooking and just sharing meals or ingredients with each other so this commoning of the food that is happening through friendship and and this intimate and very special relationship between women is actually the commoning method that is so effective in preserving people's dignity and preserving also people's lifestyle because let alone the idea that humanitarian aid provides you with basic food that they think everyone should eat but they don't care if you have cultural aspects of food or they don't care about uh, your cuisine and your identity so that's also a whole different story so yeah this is this is one uh, one aspect of how this commenting also preserves identities and agency and how people Tend to organize behind the very major structures. Um, we had the same thing in terms of education. You know, I grew up learning about my community, my history, the Palestinian geography, the city that I come from, our displacement story through mainly um, story settings or storytelling that happens in the community in a social, informal manner. So it was more of a a fun manner of hearing stories and dreaming about a place that we come from and maybe sometime or someday we will return to. Then with all the symbols, with all the uh, memories or documents or items or souvenirs that our parents and grandparents have saved and brought on the journey with them from Palestine to Lebanon. And this is how much we learned. so also, these are alternative means of education by which we fill in the gaps that are left by humanitarian aid. And then we as young people, we, I noticed that we were also reproducing all of that education that we got from our ancestors and from our parents and families. We were reproducing it in the space all around us in the camp. So we were transforming kind of the space of the camp into also an educational tool. So whether we were always doing graffiti, we were painting maps of our cities on the walls, whether we were um, writing things like uh, Free Palestine or writing the names of our cities so that we don't forget them. All of these are practices by which we're reproducing the story so that we don't forget it. I mean, I'll give you a very, very simple example. My father named me Jaffa after the Palestinian city that we come from. And this is a very common practice among all Palestinian refugees that live in refugee camps in Lebanon and in the Middle East, that they are called Jenin or Bisan or Akka, or they're all named after cities because this is a way that you always keep your history alive with you. And you're educating your children that... This is where you come from. And these are alternative methods of education that happen in in a common setting where the entire community is sharing and bringing to the table um, their vision of Palestine, but also their knowledge of Palestine. And yeah, it, it definitely challenges the hegemony that we have over education because who gets to decide... Um, the history of which wars and which country is worth mentioning in a textbook? Because it's important that I learn World War One, World War Two, but it's not important that I learn about the war that led to my own displacement. Which, in, in which world does that make any sense? So this is how refugees um, use stories to commonly learn or or build an alternative education.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Um, especially as it is also a personal experience of yours, obviously, this whole exploration of of how Commons uh, uh, develops and exists in in the refugee camp from where you're from. It's a very personal story, so I'm really grateful that you're sharing it with us today. Um, I guess I want to sort of bring it slowly to an end, although I think we could um, all say that we want to continue listening. to you discussing commons in, in this specific context and I think um, I personally am very excited to to know when your book chapter comes out because that to me is an extremely fascinating topic around um, sisterhood and food sharing and i um, curious to know more about that but hopefully we can find a way to sort of share that the information about the book um at a later date when when it's finished being written but i guess my final question is related to enclosure so we've spoken a lot about the commons and and how commoning um activities and initiatives happen within the camp but i just wondered given that sort of the refugee camp is a formally constructed space that's had its sort of borders imposed around it that have that are consistently enforced to prevent the further development of the camp and um, I have heard you say in the past about um so the social relations that happen with um, newcomers coming into the camp and how the social relations around this kind of challenge the doctrine of enclosure and how these camps can be spaces of of rescue and how these spaces of rescue to those that are that could be considered outside of the common space Um, so I just wondered if maybe you could develop on this a little bit.
1: Yeah this is also a really really um, interesting question. Um, Lebanon is um, is a very particular country in terms of the amount of refugees because uh, around one third of the population in Lebanon are refugees so there is a massive problem of uh, large amounts of Palestinian refugees that have been there for over seven decades but also a large number of undocumented refugees and that has to do more with the policies that the state is following that is rendering people um, undocumented and that is making them in this situation but the relationship of the Palestinian refugee camp has been also quite fascinating um, with the other refugees because I've always known that we had this solidarity among each other as a Palestinian community. And, you know, we've lived with each other for decades in this small space. So we've developed these really strong bonds of trust. But what I've also noticed is that because we sort of became the more established refugees, you know, the refugees that have been so experienced about being refugees, um, and we've developed our ways of agency that I realized we have also been sharing sharing that with other newcomers with other new refugees that have just been displaced or are going through also their own struggles and are being neglected or overlooked by the state and this was you know quite specific in the pandemic because the time of the pandemic was the time when the states were in charge and we were hearing these slogans like the return of the state because the states were the ones that uh, were providing medical assistance, they were rolling out vaccinations, they were paying or like compensating people for the loss of jobs and you know enforcing the lockdown. But then what happens to those who are not protected by the states? What happens to stateless communities such as Palestinian refugee camps that are not protected by any state in the world? Uh, what happens to people who um, are not seen by the states, such as the documented migrants. What happens to all these people that are left out in the pandemic? And basically what I've witnessed is that um, I have seen how Palestinian refugees were establishing these um, small medical initiatives, more specifically in my own refugee camp in al Barajne. There was this medical center that was very primitive. You know, they didn't have any advanced resources. But basically, they have created it through crowdfunding within the camp. At the beginning, it was mainly just to help people have a place to quarantine or to deal with uh, minor complications. But then as the pandemic got more complicated, they actually started uh, seeking for donations from Palestinian refugees that have went abroad, like myself, like other people who have managed to to live outside and are able maybe to contribute a little bit and with that money that they've collected through this smart uh, strategic scaling, they have purchased some oxygen machines. So now they were able to assist more Palestinian refugees that were contracting the virus, but not are not covered or not protected by the Lebanese government due to their exclusion policies. They're in the camp and they're not protected by the public health scheme. So they had to figure out their own way. So that was interesting. But then I said, you know, I want to see it for myself. I want to see what the place looks like, how the volunteers are working their way through it. Are the resources good enough? Are they able to help out people? And one thing that I first realized when I went in is that this is a very multicultural, diverse place where all the people that are receiving healthcare in the center are not only Palestinian refugees, as I understood. And I've met a lot of undocumented Syrian refugees who have crossed the borders without authorization, so they cannot go to hospitals, otherwise they will be deported. A lot of Syrian refugees also, they entered in a legal manner, but then the state didn't want to renew their permits because they think that Syria is safe, so there is no purpose for you to be here anymore. So they have lost their legal status and also they cannot go to the hospital. Um, so all of these people were actually receiving medical care at this center that was created by common efforts by refugees in a very primitive, but also grassroots manner of crowdfunding. And they were receiving the care that they needed in order to survive their COVID uh, infection. And it was just this, um, this epiphany or this realization that this is the place that people often fear This is the place or the space that we often dub as spaces of exception, spaces of terrorism, spaces of fear, spaces of whatever. And these are actually the spaces that rescue people who are abandoned by the government, or this is um, the space that rescues people who are marginalized in the city. So these people in the city had nowhere else to go but this refugee camp because this was the only space— place that wasn't gonna ask them about how legal they are in the country or how eligible they are for receiving medical care so this commoning I realized that it transforms the spaces into um, rescue spaces and solidarity spaces also for everyone and not just for the community that is commonly creating the space and this is the beautiful thing about commons is that it's not Limited. It's not closed. It makes the spaces porous. It makes the spaces collaborative, even outside its boundaries. Um, it it yeah. It teaches people to, or also spaces to be welcoming, to be collaborative, to to share um, resources beyond limits and beyond boundaries and beyond uh, everything that is the state is is enforcing.
0: Well, that's a really beautiful note to, to end it on I think. Um, so thank you so much for talking us through your experiences and sharing the stories that you have encountered um, in, in your work and also in your own life um, and stories of other people. Um, other than that I just want to say thank you so much for talking with me today and yeah I look forward to reading more of your work um, and learning about commons in, in, in the context of, of refugee camps, because I think this is a very important lens through which to look um, at these spaces.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that we had this conversation.